Welcome to the podcast, Conquering Cancer Together. I'm Wendy Kaplan, Director of Nutritional Services here at New York Cancer and Blood Specialists, and this is Dr. Marianne Fregola, Clinical Director of Supportive Services. We are your podcast hosts and are thrilled to have you back here with us. This is made possible thanks to a generous partnership with Pfizer. Pfizer shares our mission in providing world-class, patient-centered, affordable care to patients with cancer and blood disorders in their communities close to family and friends. Our goal in this series is to shed light on a variety of issues surrounding cancer. Today's episode will focus on multiple myeloma. We'll explore aspects of this disease, including screening recommendations, diagnosis and treatment options, and we'll also talk about how social determinants of health affect those with the disease. We'll look into post-treatment management, including the role of diet and lifestyle and supportive care, and how they can affect people living with multiple myeloma. References and links on the information discussed today can also be found in our show notes. We are thrilled to have Dr. Jerry George, medical oncologist at New York Cancer and Blood Specialists, here with us today to talk about multiple myeloma. Dr. George, thank you and welcome. Thank you for having me on the podcast today. So let's get started. Can you start with providing a brief overview of multiple myeloma, including some of its symptoms? Sure. Um, Myeloma is basically a type of cancer that affects plasma cells, which are blood cells that are in the bone marrow, and it's a type of white cell. So plasma cells are cells that help your body produce antibodies that protect it from infectious processes. Typically, myeloma starts from these plasma cells that are found in the bone marrow, and they replicate uncontrollably and start crowding out healthy bone marrow cells, and they can cause a wide variety of issues. Usually, these processes also start from a precancerous syndrome called MGUS, or monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. MGUS itself is actually pretty common. It occurs in about 3% of the population above the age of 50 and it can actually progress into more serious conditions like myeloma, as we discussed before, at about 1% per year. It's associated with a wide variety of symptoms. A lot of times we like to use the acronym of CRAB to describe the symptoms associated with myeloma. So C stands for hypercalcemia or a high calcium level, which can cause a lot of symptoms such as muscle spasms, constipation, and feeling tired. R stands for kidney problems or renal disease, where you can actually develop swelling and problems with urinary retention. A stands for anemia, and you can have a wide variety of symptoms related to anemia, including fatigue, weakness, dizziness. And B stands for bony disease, where you can actually develop lesions on the bone, which can lead to pain and fracture and other serious conditions. Now, not everybody with myeloma will have all these symptoms at once. Correct. Uh, You can have all these symptoms or you can have actually none of these symptoms at all. And I want to bring up one good point when you mentioned MGUS. Many patients always fear that it'll turn into something, but in most cases, this is something that can be very indolent. Like I said before, most people with MGUS just requires intermittent uh, monitoring of their labs and uh, also have a physical assessment to make sure they're they're relatively asymptomatic. For the most part, MGUS itself is very indolent and you just watch it. How does multiple myeloma differ from other types of blood cancer? So myeloma itself differs from other disorders like leukemia and lymphoma for a wide variety of reasons. 
first of all, it affects a lot of times different types of cells. So like I said before, it affects plasma cells where other types of leukemias and lymphomas can affect lymphocytes and other white cells. Also, multiple myeloma affects mainly the bone marrow where leukemia, you can have cells that are outside of the bone marrow. The symptoms that you may see also may be different where you may have bony pain, weakness, and immune issues as well. And the treatment approaches are actually different as well, where a lot of times myeloma, we actually have targeted therapies and uh, antibody-related therapies that can be very successful and where we can eliminate chemotherapeutic drugs, where a lot of times when we treat certain types of leukemias and lymphomas, chemotherapy can be a mainstay of treatment for these patients. And can you also tell us a little bit about the diagnostic process for multiple myeloma and the key tests that are involved? Sure. Um, myeloma itself, you basically need an appropriate history and physical, like with any other patient you assess. Also, you need to do blood testing. There are a couple of blood tests that we would usually do, including a CBC or a complete blood count, a chemistry test looking at your kidney function, calcium levels. And we would also test for these abnormal proteins that these plasma cells may create. And that we can test with other blood tests, such as an immunofixation or protein testing. We also would test a urine test to look for these abnormal proteins that you may see in myeloma. Other tests that we may do are bone marrow biopsies that look for the plasma cells that may be abnormal. Also, imaging tests can be very important, such as PET scans, MRIs, and x-rays. I'd like to ask a question about the bone marrows because I want to alleviate everybody's fear that just jumped up when you said that. So how do we make people comfortable when you do a bone marrow exam? So before you do a bone marrow exam, you basically have to explain that you're more afraid of the procedure than you actually have pain from the procedure. Obviously, it's not fun. It's not like going on a car ride or going on a trip. But it's most of the time, most of my patients have more anxiety and fear related to it than actual pain from the procedure. We obviously give a lot of anesthetics to help alleviate any symptoms someone may have. And we take time with the procedure, talk the person through the procedure to make sure that they're okay with it. That's why I wanted to bring it up because I know that we do local anesthetics and people do really, really well. And most of the time it really is that anticipatory anxiety that they have. So it's great to alleviate their fears, especially with a podcast like this. (laughs) Um, Now, can we also talk about how myeloma can affect different age groups and demographics? Sure. Um, Myeloma itself is more commonly associated with people of older age, although I don't know if I would classify that as older now, but the average age of someone being diagnosed is usually in their late 60s, 70s. Typically uncommon to see someone with an age lower than 40 to be diagnosed, although it can happen. You also see it more commonly among certain ethnic groups. You may see it more commonly associated with people of African-American descent compared to Caucasians and Asians. And uh, it's not really understood how it influences genetics and environmental factors completely and socioeconomic factors as well. What about gender? So uh, sometimes you'll see it uh, slightly more common in the male population. And has there been any routine screening that has been noted to be helpful? So there really isn't any absolute routine screening that's suggested other than normally having your normal annual exams with your primary care physician so they can examine your blood work, uh, look at your CBC, look at your chemistry panel, and also just make sure you're healthy. Thank you. 
I think we're so much more aware that social determinants of health affect many aspects of health and treatment. What are your thoughts on how this influences the experience of people living with multiple myeloma? I completely agree that uh, the social determinants of health are very crucial aspect of providing comprehensive care for individuals with multiple myeloma, and it affects people in multiple different ways. One thing is that there's also a financial barrier that can affect people, especially if people of lower socioeconomic status. Right, even just with access to treatment. Exactly. Although we, a lot of times, hopefully have great insurance, uh, insurance can definitely be a barrier, sadly. Also, how fast can that person get access to the care that they need, you know, and how can they get transported to their physician? How can they get transported to their office visits and treatments or other testing that they may need? Also, there may be a limitation of health understanding in some individuals, and health literacy can obviously be an important aspect of this as well. And that can hinder a person's understanding of what needs to be done and how important it is to treat the disease. Right, especially with so much going on and all these life stressors. I think that we're we're always, <laughs> I can say myself, uh, that I'm overwhelmed with a lot of things. and uh, That could apply all around. <laughs> I think very few people are like uh, not overwhelmed at all. Uh, but then when you add the diagnosis of cancer that I can't imagine the, the stress that will uh, compound. Yeah, compound. And then sometimes people get overwhelmed and they kind of want to ignore things. And we just have to, as physicians, we have to discuss the importance of why things need to be treated in a timely fashion. Now, we spoke earlier a little bit about some of the uh, treatments that are available, and we can see that myeloma now has become a chronic illness with more treatment options available. Can you discuss some of the advancements in multiple myeloma treatment? So multiple myeloma, uh, even from for the time I've been practicing over the last decade, has significantly changed where there have been dozens and dozens of treatment options that have been more available. Like I mentioned before, myeloma itself, we actually don't treat people with first-line chemotherapeutic drugs. And a lot of times we like to try to use targeted therapies and personalized medicine in their treatment and care plan. So uh, first-line treatment for a lot of individuals will be sometimes oral medications and uh, injectable medications. Some of these drugs include oral medications like lenalidomide and pomalist or pomalidomide that are actually pills that you can take that modulate someone's immune system. There are injectable drugs, something called Velcade or bortezomib, that also affect the immune system and how cells survive and how they replicate. There are also drugs that are called monoclonal antibodies that I like to think are more targeted drugs that are specific to certain proteins on myeloma cells and other cancer cells that help your immune system destroy those cells. And there are more advanced therapies like CAR-T therapy, which are targeted therapies, again, that stimulate a person's immune system to basically target myeloma cells. And can I ask, when you're treating a patient, obviously you personalize it to them, but they've been tolerating things very well and for extensive times, correct? Correct. I mean, several decades ago, myeloma was considered uh, end-stage disease where people may only have had a few months of life. 
but now we measure lifespan for myeloma in years to decades. Yeah, I've seen it myself from starting the practice. It's amazing the advancements over even the past, like you said, like 10 years. Yeah. It's unbelievable the, the advances they've made. Yeah, it's just uh, you're managing other side effects, not mm-hmm. just a person's treatment or disease-related side effects. You're also looking at their social issues that they may have or psychiatric issues that mm-hmm. they may face with the disease. But Thank goodness a lot of my patients live a relatively long, healthy life, and treatment itself can manage them very well. And that leads us to our next question, actually. Again, due to these life-prolonging treatments, our patients are living longer. So let's elaborate on ways multiple myeloma impacts a person's daily life, especially considering these long-term side effects. So myeloma itself, a lot of times looking at a person's lifespan of years and decades, thank goodness. And obviously with that lifespan, you're dealing with other adverse events. We offer physical therapy, emotional therapy uh, with psychology and therapists to help deal with that. Also, sometimes this disease can affect the bone and where you can actually get bony disease from this and which can cause weakness and we can deal with that with medications. Again, physical therapy can be very important in these patients' lives as well as referral to other treatment modalities that can help alleviate some of these symptoms. Also, these people can deal with emotional and psychological impact. Anyone dealing with a long-term illness like this can deal with anxiety and depression, and we have amazing services that may help with that, like psychologists, psychiatrists, supportive care service, obviously, that help our patients deal with these psychological impacts of these diseases. Um, We also deal with the social impact of this. A person may feel isolated, and it's important to deal with someone's mental well-being and talking about the disease. As a physician, I at least try to dig out what might be affecting them for them to have a good quality of life. And we just want to not only deal with their medical illness, we also want to deal with their emotional well-being. Right. That's the key quality of life. I always say it's a good problem to have that with all these wonderful therapies and treatments, life is extended. But with that comes along so many side effects that are lingering long term. Even like one thing that comes to mind off the top of my head is with all these treatment regimens, people are on long term steroids, which leads to other things like hyperglycemia, metabolic syndrome, and you know all these things. So as a team, you mentioned all these services. It's so important to be proactive and early intervention with everyone. I completely agree. I think that cancer care is not just dealing with your oncologist and your main physician. Cancer care is a multidisciplinary approach. You're also dealing with other physicians like radiation oncologists, psychiatrists, also other ancillary services like nutrition, supportive care. They're so important to a person's care, and it leads to not only just physical well-being, but a mental well-being and for a long, good quality of life for someone. I think about from a nutrition standpoint, everything you mentioned, the bone health, the renal insufficiencies, all these things are, again, good to work on from the get-go to hopefully help alleviate anything down the road. We're, we're looking at uh, not just the next few months, we're looking at decades down the line. And I think it's very important for someone to 
realize that. Sometimes as oncologists, we're always focused on weight gain (laughs) because a lot of our patients tend to have a loss of appetite. So we kind of push our patients to just eat and eat and eat. But we also have to look at the long-term adverse events associated with treatment, cardiovascular disease, uh, endocrinopathies like diabetes, obesity. All these things are important and, uh, you know, paying attention is crucial. Right. A lot of times, even before getting that diagnosis, patients with multiple myeloma may be malnourished. I agree. Um, I mean, we're not only looking at someone's weight or body mass index, right? We're looking at their nutritional status. Or we, do they have the right nutrients in their body to help with good growth overall for that person? My personal self, I have celiac disease and I thought that, oh, it's just avoiding gluten, that's it. But the first thing I did was after I met with my gastroenterologist is the next office over was I met with the nutritionist that same day. And I realized, oh, it's not just avoiding wheat and barley and rye. And uh, <laughs> it's more than that. And I didn't realize the nutritional deficiencies I had at that point. There's a lot of research that shows that early nutrition intervention improves overall protein and energy intake. I think a lot of times people just need a little extra guidance and a push because they want to do the right thing. They may just not have the know-how or the tools in their toolbox yet. I agree. When I talk to my patients about appropriate nutrition, limiting the amount of bad fat that they may have or limiting the amount of bad carbs that they may have and increasing the amount of good lean proteins that they may have in their diet, everyone always tells me I know what to do. And uh, <laughs> and I agree. I, I think we all know what we, we, we kind of need to do in a somewhat of a way, but we really need some guidance, and a see meeting with a nutritionist dietitian is very important. A question which now was answered was what I was going to say was these support services that we have, including nutrition, physical therapy. I myself can say that I've worked very closely with you with our patients together in improving their quality of life. So I know firsthand some of the efforts that we've done together, and that's been enhancing. I hope you feel the same. <laughs> it's been enhancing a lot of the patient care, dealing with long-term side effects such as neuropathy even that can be associated with multiple myeloma. And most of the time, these patients feel that when they stop treatment, if they get a reprieve from treatment, that they'll go away. But sometimes they have these long-term effects that affect their quality of life. So including the supportive care team and physical therapy, all essential to whole patient care. I completely agree. Uh, when when someone starts a treatment, we have a pre-treatment evaluation that includes meeting with a patient educator, mm-hmm. obviously, to talk about their treatment, but also meeting with a nutritionist as well as social work or financial aspects to discuss that as well. It's easy enough for me to reach out to Marianne to see Mm -hmm. if I need help with something, whether it be loss of appetite that Mm -hmm. we may experience or uh, neuropathy or other emotional needs that the person may have. It's easy enough for me to reach out to a colleague. And I want to ask quickly, just because I think this is a, a light at the end of the tunnel, that you you do give reprieves for patients when they need to, correct? I was just going to ask the same yeah, thing. Yeah, and they do well. And sometimes patients have maybe an event that they just want to break from. And, and how do you feel about giving a break from treatment once in a while? I think breaks are important. I give the, the term, I guess we say, is uh, treatment holidays or chemo holidays. I think that uh, around the holidays, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, New Year's, I think it's it's important for their person to not have to come to the doctor's office, not having to come for infusions as often. I think it's quite important for their emotional well-being. And I think chemo holidays are really important just because I get tired of coming here every day too. So <laughs> I can't imagine my patients getting tired as well. Give them a sense of some normalcy once exactly. in a blue moon, right? And some hope. Yeah. Enjoy mm-hmm. that time with their family. 
vacations, the holidays. Yeah, Yeah. which improves quality of life overall because it lets them feel normal. Which is our goal. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And now are there any new emerging therapies or clinical trials offering more hope for patients with multiple myeloma? So the good thing is there are many, 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 many therapies and emerging therapies coming out for myeloma. A lot of clinical trials that are out and our focus is a lot on personalized medicine in these patients. And um, like I mentioned before, CAR-T therapy is something that is out and available for a lot of our patients where we use the person's own immune system, where we use their T cells, and we target that against a person's myeloma cells. And uh, that can really help in people that have even had multiple treatments where they can actually get a good response in their disease. Biospecific antibody therapies, just like CAR-T therapy, can produce excellent response for people with myeloma. Even if they've had multiple lines of treatment previously, they can also be well-tolerated in these patients. There's also treatments called bite therapies, which kind of also relates to that CAR-T therapy where we get more of a targeted therapy where we can actually have engineered targeted therapy against the myeloma cells. There's also drugs that are called antibody drug conjugates, which, which are kind of like little missiles that can attack these myeloma cells. And there's more and more treatments out uh, every day that are fantastic, where they show significant response and good response. and offer limited adverse events or limited side effects. And a lot of times we can control these side effects with the help of supportive care service and other uh, people that may help us with giving our patients a very good quality of life. I know unlike in some other cancers, multiple myeloma, there are a lot of different lines of therapy. And many years of therapy, which is what we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. What can we do to bring more awareness to this, to multiple myeloma? I think that um, we have to realize that it's a very treatable disease, and I I think that we just have to look out for symptoms earlier. A lot of this is with the help of our primary care providers that screen these patients, looking for abnormalities in their blood counts, looking for these symptoms. I've had some amazing primary care providers that have sent patients to me just for a minor lab abnormality, and they've picked it up. I think looking for symptoms associated with myeloma, including including that that CRAB acronym that we used before, looking for bone issues, looking for symptoms of anemia or kidney issues. We're learning more about the disease every day that we can push push the fact that this is more of a chronic issue. Yeah, and I love that we mentioned that it's so treatable. I think that's so important in this world that patients alleviate that fear that we can we can treat them and they can do very well. I agree. I think they can do extremely well. I just saw a patient of mine today, uh, someone that I like to call more mature. He's in his <laughs> 80s. Uh, he's in his late 80s, actually. I just started him on treatment recently, and he's doing fantastic. He has some minimal symptoms. He looks like he's tolerating the treatment pretty well. Thank goodness. Knock on wood here. And then I've had patients that are younger where we maybe can become a little more aggressive with their treatment. You can get fantastic responses. And the good thing is the treatments, uh, I think, have led to this being, like we've all said before, chronic in nature. And it's great that you're targeting that treatment based on the patient, like you said, for somebody a little younger, maybe more aggressive. But, you know, listen, that elderly man has a lot of life left in him. And if he can do well and, and keep him stable, that's amazing. I think he has a lot of good years to go in front of him. So, yeah. So, Dr. George, is there something you feel that is important that we did not discuss, something you would like to add or take away from this? 
I think that it's not just treatment of the disease, it's treatment of the person. I think that's very important. I think that we need to realize that we're not treating myeloma, we're treating Mr. Smith or Mrs. Jones, right? So we need to realize that we're treating their emotional well-being, their financial well-being, their, their just overall care. We want to control that person's symptoms, fatigue, loss of appetite. We want to make sure that they have many, 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 many more years of a good life, and we we have to offer them an individualized, personalized care plan. I think that's really important. That's what we do at this community cancer center. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's it's a great goal that we have, and it's great that we have so many disciplines that can work together to make that happen. I agree. I, I want to get to know my patients as a person. You know, like I like to know if they like to drive their car or <laughs> like to ride spend their ride their bike. Oh, <laughs> although I've I did I've told my. 99-year-old patients, maybe like uh, be a little careful, use some training wheels once in a while, so I don't want them to break anything. But, um, um, you know, we have to realize that uh, I want to know that person. I want to know what they want from their treatment goals, from their life. So I think that's important. I think I'm happy to work here that we can offer that and treat our patients like we would treat our family members. Yeah, especially that they're going to come see you for quite a long time. <laughs> Definitely. Can you briefly explain some of the transplant options in multiple myeloma? I know you spoke about many systemic treatments, but also different types of transplants. So uh, for myeloma, the main two types of transplants that we're looking at are uh, autologous transplants or allogeneic transplants. For myeloma, it's we're looking at treating with autologous transplants, which is basically taking all the good cells from that person, all the good stem cells from that person, and giving it back to them after some type of, the term is myeloablative therapy. So that's basically getting rid of all the bad cells, but also some of the good cells, and then giving back their good cells back to them. So transplant is still a line of therapy for patients with myeloma after they've achieved some response after that initial therapy. Um, transplant is definitely something that should be considered in younger individuals, people in their 50s and 60s that are healthy, and I think that it's still important in their treatment plan. In older individuals, it may not be appropriate in someone in their 80s or 90s where we can see myeloma. It just uh, may not be appropriate because it can be associated with symptoms and adverse events associated with transplant. That includes infection and low blood counts and other complications. So it is definitely important um, in, the, in the consideration of myeloma. But as we get more and more lines of therapy out there, newer treatments, our feeling is that it may not be as important as it used to be. Transplant, the word does sound very scary. And obviously, like you said, with patients that are that are applicable, it has been a little easier now than it was years ago, correct? The recovery time seems to have improved. I definitely agree. Transplant recovery times have definitely decreased in time. It's measured in a few weeks rather than maybe a month that, uh, when I was initially in training. And the, um, people will recover a lot better from it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for our third episode of Conquering Cancer Together. We hope you enjoyed it and found it informative. Please share this podcast with anyone you feel would benefit. We welcome your feedback, so please feel free to reach out to us by email. We hope you tune in for more episodes of our podcast sponsored by Pfizer. Links to references and resources can be found in our show notes. We're also all over social media, so please find us and like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 
LinkedIn. In addition to our social media outlets, you can always find us close to home conquering cancer together. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It's intended to provide a patient-provider relationship. It is not designed to take the place of medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider and team regarding any medical issues, symptoms you have, and concerns regarding screening, diagnosis, and side effects.